it's hard to learn when you already know and you have been trained to know. Hello and welcome to Clinical Changemakers, the podcast that explores vital lessons in healthcare leadership, innovation, and so much more. I'm your host, Dr. Jono. Today on the show, we have Professor Amy Edmonton. She's the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at Harvard Business School. She has a rich scholarly background in leadership, teaming, organizational learning, among a wide range of other topics. She is author of multiple books, including the upcoming Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. So let's begin. Professor Amy Edmondson, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Uh, your area of expertise in organizational behavior is quite fascinating. But before we jump into that, I would love to learn a little bit more about your background because I saw that you started out doing engineering and I'll be really curious to know how you made that uh, transition from engineering into organizational behavior. Well, I think the best way to explain it is that it, in my early work in an engineering capacity, over time, I realized I was more interested in the people side than the technical side. The, the, I would be doing calculations for various projects and, and engineering drawings. It was very much structural engineering. And it but the actual production of a prototype or seeing something happen in the real world nearly always involved interpersonal and organizational dynamics that I began to realize were an area of study in their own right. It was not something, it was not, those were not fields I was very familiar with. So over time, I realized that that's what I was passionate about. And so if you were to give maybe a little bit of an overview of, of what uh, this field is and why it matters so much uh, in healthcare. Well, I think the field, the field that I come from, which is called organizational behavior, or maybe more generally management, at least the science we do informs management thinking, um, is, is of great relevance for healthcare, in part, of course, because healthcare occurs in organizations, in and between organizations, with people who have great you know, expert training of a variety of kinds, and of course, must work together to deliver high-quality, safe care. And that, I, I think people in healthcare take that for granted, that that's, that's, of course, what you do, and you're trained to do it, and you do it well, and all of that is true, um, and may, as a result, underemphasize just how complex that is. And from a, from a psychological and organizational standpoint, this is really fraught with hurdles. By this, I mean the process of collaborating in the face of some uncertainty, a great deal of customization, and, uh, and teaming across boundaries you know, to, to get this complex work done is, you know, is really challenging. And it, the, it can vary, meaning the success or effectiveness of your work can vary immensely based on aspects that would fall under the area of management, of understanding human behavior in organizational settings. And, and so in, in my research, I have found just incredible variance and including, if not especially in the healthcare delivery, say generally hospital setting, where people with similar backgrounds and educations can still be producing very different outcomes and behavioral outcomes based on things as maybe subtle as the leadership behavior of clinicians in that, in that area. 
Why do you think that area has been so underdeveloped or underfocused um, in healthcare? I think because the history of healthcare, if you read Paul Starr and, and the sort of other scholars of, of the history of medicine, let's say, um, and understandably came from a place of the, the individual practitioner who did the best he could or she could with the limited knowledge available at the time. A great deal of the work of the country doctor, you know, a hundred years ago was delivering placebos um, in, you know, in, in, um, for things that, that actually placebos worked pretty well in some cases. Nonetheless, the point is the care was delivered largely by individuals to individuals. And it's, it's, what's, it's what's called the professional model. And the professional model is based on the assumption that you have a profession which has expertise and rules and norms of conduct, and those guide the delivery of the service. Those, de- those guide the, the work that you do, not management, right? Not, and, and that's still true. And over time, the production of healthcare became far more complex, far more um, you know, multidisciplinary. And you know, where, where there used to be doctors, now there are you know, dozens of, of specialties and subspecialties, and in some cases, uh, and ancillary care roles and so forth. And in, and in most cases, and certainly in chronic care cases, people have to work together with people from other groups um, to, to provide the best care. So I'll be curious to pick up on a point you made around some similarities across professionals and professional s- services. You know, thinking of lawyers, engineers, p- pilots, uh, consultants. Uh, what are those similarities that uh, that we all have, and perhaps what are some of the trappings that we we have by being uh, uh, professionals and having the particular identities that we do? Well, I think that a trap. I think law is a is quite similar. I think consulting is a little different, um, depending on what you're consulting on. You know, if you're if you're consulting um, on something that has itself a body of expertise that is sort of agreed upon expertise. You know, if this, then that uh, kind of knowledge, then it becomes more similar. Uh, the um, some I just want to. I mean, some aspects of consulting today are, are, um, you know, in a sense, extra problem solvers who are very smart and well-rounded in, in, in a lot of cases, right? As opposed to bringing a distinct expert body of knowledge to bear on a client's needs. Um, what professionals have in common is the reliance on a body of knowledge, a body of expertise that is accompanied by rules and norms of conduct that guide how that knowledge is used. And it's, 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 it's the, the profession is kind of the, the governance mechanism, if you will, as opposed to the organization. Um, I think a lot of professionals don't think of themselves, you know, even if they're in an organizational structure, they don't think of themselves as having a boss who guides their and, and evaluates their activity, or and when they do, it's a sort of uh, almost a secondary 
attribute. We're very, that's not to say we're not sensitive to hierarchy in professions. We are, uh, but it's often not, it's not managerial hierarchy. It's professional hierarchy and expertise hierarchy. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I think I, I reflect on uh, working in medicine and, and how uh, tightly, yeah, my identity is wound up uh, in this in this group, as well as the the regulation. You know, if if I were to uh, make a mistake or um, uh, to practice in a particular way, you know, they would be looking to hold me accountable for that. Uh, I guess one of the challenges there is that um, there could be perhaps blind spots in that group just because of the way that we've learned and the way that we talk about problems and, and implement solutions that we might be missing some aspects of, of um, important changes. And then, and then you raise a really good point as well is, is that may mean that our goals are not aligned with the organisation uh, that we're working uh, for. I, I wondered if you could talk to those points. Well, first of all, I, I absolutely want to underline the idea of the blind spots. And, and of course, in fact, that's, that's in many ways the whole, um, it's the whole idea is that, that each of us has blind spots. And it doesn't matter whether, if you're coming from a profession, if you're guided by a professional ethos and knowledge, um, you have particular kinds of blind spots. And, and uh, the ones we've been talking about are ones maybe related to things um, that are quite second nature to those who study management or who study human psychology, where the, the, the blind spots may relate to um, that which you will miss about what other people might see or understand. And you don't even realize you're missing something because your knowledge is so profound. And so it's hard to learn when you already know and you have been trained to know, right? to kind of to, to see and size up a situation, to diagnose, to come to a conclusion. Of course, great clinicians keep an open mind. You know, it might be something else, but they may not have as open a mind or as much developed awareness about things that they're missing, say how they're coming across to the patient and how that may be making it difficult for the patient to say more truthful things about their condition or experience. So they might be might be blind to some of the interpersonal dynamics that could get in the way actually of making the best diagnosis because they don't have all the information or information that the social worker might have or the nurse might have seen um, that the um, that the physician might miss. So um, but I don't I don't want to imply in any way that blind spots are unique to medicine. All all fields and all individuals have blind spots, right? things that we things that we miss because we are l- largely because we're focused on something else. Like we, we have our training leads us to con- to to see certain things as important, to look for certain kinds of data, to pay attention to certain kinds of data and therefore to miss other uh, signals. And I think what you're speaking to is, is something that is a often a clash in organizations between uh, the professionals and uh, the systems of, of administration or bureaucracies. They're bore out of any complex organization trying to reduce variability, uh, limit waste, uh, but clinicians often work in this gray area where there's ambiguity, where um, you know novel, emergent, good practice has to be deployed at certain times. Uh, so I see there's a tension there. How do you feel 
that uh, clinicians perhaps could know more about uh, what the goals are for a bureaucracy such that we can work together a little bit better? It's <laughs> a great question. The thing that comes to mind is time frame. And, and I think in healthcare today, there's a, there's a huge emphasis on becoming more efficient, right? And do, doing things more efficiently, um, seeing more patients, taking less time per patient, for example. And many times that's a false efficiency. It's, it's an efficiency today, maybe this week, maybe even this year, but a very real source of inefficiency later because of the things that aren't caught, the things that aren't discussed, the preventative care and tests that aren't done that could have saved, you know, hundreds, thousands of dollars later. And, and so in, in any profession or any work environment where there's uncertainty and variability, and so when you're stacking, when you're stacking just from a purely operations management point of view, when you're stacking appointments too close together, you know, some, some patients will take uh, no time at all. They're healthy. They have nothing going on, you know, in, out, all is well. Others, in, in ways that you could not necessarily have expected when you're doing the scheduling, need more time. So there's, and so arguably you need slack built into the system so that you can actually spend the time you need for the long term, and long term might even be just a couple of years out from now, but the long term um, health and cost effectiveness of caring for that for that patient. Um, you know, one of the one of the aspects of you know, population health is, of course, that we do we want to care. We do care about the longer term, but the short term economics and incentives are not necessarily making that easy. And and I think it's hard for people within the system to figure out effectively how to challenge it. I think they see you see these dynamics unfolding, um, but it's hard to know whom to take this up with. Yeah, and I, and I think you mentioned before where clinicians uh, may only feel accountable to their professional organisation, then there is actually just a, a real disconnect between uh, the flow of information to the, the people or, or positions that may be able to make the most influence in their work environment. Um, I'd be curious to, to talk about are there particular models or other types of industries that perhaps healthcare could aspire to? I'm thinking of the high reliability organizations. Yeah, it's 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 such an interesting question. I, I want to start by saying I think all industries are different and different in important ways. Right? So the, the differences matter. Like I, I, I think we need to import principles and in some cases practices, but in other cases not practices from other industries into healthcare. Right. So High reliability organizations conceptually and the principles of high reliability organizations, I think, are utterly transferable because the principles are kind of a, an, a heightened awareness of vulnerability, right? a heightened awareness of the fact that you are working in a complex error prone system. And, you know, and with that shared heightened awareness comes a great willingness to speak up early and often about things, not only that you know are off, but things that might be off, right? That you even suspect 
but can't quite find a reason why you suspect might be off, right? That we welcome and you know signals of ambiguous threat in high reliability organizations in a way that is all is not consistently true in healthcare. Right? In healthcare, you know, you wait till it's a code blue and then you're allowed to raise your hand, but sort of the something just feels off in many systems. It's harder to sort of speak up about that and get and get anyone to take you seriously. So so um, another principle of high reliability organizations is that hierarchy is um, explicitly um, minimized, at least in terms of how we relate to each other. It's not that hierarchy isn't there. It's just that it's not seen as the source of all answers. Um, it's it is assumed that a good idea or a concern can come from anywhere. And, and expertise is valued, um, but sort of status is less valued if, if, if you can make that distinction, right? So in some cases, the greatest expert, let's say on you know, some uh, new imaging uh, technology is a, as a young um, technician as opposed to a senior radiologist. And that in, in the, with high reliability thinking, one would be deeply interested in the perspective of that young technician, just for example. Um, so the, I think these principles of awareness of risk, of heedful interrelating, um, are utterly transferable. What, what's often, I mean, healthcare is more variable than most high reliability organizations that are studied. Meaning if you're studying nuclear power or um, submarine uh, operations, um, those are compared to healthcare relatively consistent tasks over time, um, versus healthcare where you know in, in a busy emergency room, who knows what's coming in today, right? There's 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 more heterogeneity of inputs um, in healthcare, but the but so again the the principles really do apply, similar to aviation, right? you, the principles of of making it safe for people to speak up, for example, are absolutely uh, embedded in that system through co uh, crew resource management and norms that have taken shape over the last 30 years. And those are applicable. Um, the exact nature of, of aviation is quite different than the exact nature of healthcare delivery. Yeah, and I just want to pick up on that last point you said that uh, these changes have happened over decades, right? That that energy was needed to be put into these systems, where I assume uh, uh, there was no doubt uh, reluctance to change practices, to change norms, to um, put yourself out there to say, hey, you know, these are the standards that we're going to accept and and not accept, and so. Uh, you know, these organizations didn't suddenly become high reliability organizations overnight. There, there was work that was needed. And I think sometimes when you look at other industries, uh, because of where they're at on that evolution, it can be sometimes hard to reflect on how healthcare can also uh, get to that space. I think, yeah, I think let's meet somewhere in the middle there because um, it is true that the these transitions started decades ago, although I would argue in some cases, like in aviation, once they realized how often, for example, airline crashes, airplane crashes, were traced back to an inability to speak up in the cockpit. Like once once the, there was enough data in the late 70s um, about that causal factor, they acted quickly. 
um, it's not to say that people's mindsets transformed overnight, but the training was in, intense and immediate. And um, so it was, it was a pretty quick turnaround. You know, was, this is not something, this is something that probably unfolded over a few years rather than over decades, probably to make it something that's just utterly taken for granted takes, takes decades. But I think part of the challenge is that, again, the, 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 the relative consistency of say passenger air travel compared to patient healthcare um, gives 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 that little bit of advantage there, um, and then also of course um, healthcare has the feeling of I mean this is related to the first point and the third point I almost don't want to mention but I will anyway but the healthcare has the feeling of being unique you know each person who comes in is unique in some small or large way so it it. It can leave you with the sense that well, each, each thing is just a unique encounter, and there are no sort of, you know, rules or trainings that would be useful across all this uniqueness. Um, and then a third thing, of course, is you know, if you're if you are in a um, plane accident, uh, your life is on the line uh, as well. So the the motivation is is thought to be greater. I don't think that's exactly. I mean, that's true, but I don't think that's exactly explanatory because I, I have not met a clinician who didn't truly want the very best outcome right, for their patient. Absolutely. And I'd like to pick up on a couple of things that I think you've uh, written about before around the context of uh, mistakes or emergent sorts of problems around the Columbia Space Shuttle disaster and the recovery window which I thought was a fascinating uh, concept. Yeah, the, the recovery window is a um, sort of a hypothetical time period um, that starts when any individual notices something that seems out of whack, right? Notices something that might be a safety issue, might be, might be a concern, but they're not you know, they're not 100% sure and they're not 100% sure whether it's okay to speak up about it. But forget that part. Just it, it, the recovery window begins when um, someone is aware of a potential issue, right? And then it ends when an undesired safety incident occurs. And that's the window during which preventative action was theoretically possible. Um, and of course, sometimes action is taken and, and, and things are caught and corrected. And other times, that recovery window is squandered, um, in and and sometimes because someone just didn't feel comfortable speaking up. Other times because they spoke up but nobody really took them seriously, or nobody was listening, or they were listening but just didn't buy it, didn't believe it, didn't run the tests to to determine one way or another whether or not it was true. Um, I, I like the the concept of a recovery window because I think it is empowering. It, when you when you realize those are there whether they're being called attention to or not, these are moments or periods of possibility that could be taken advantage of. And I think what we're touching on there as well is these types of things that in the front line of, of healthcare that we can employ these types of um, uh, concepts to ensure that we are practicing safely at high quality, uh, but also that we're creating an environment of, of psychological safety. Now, I know you've written a lot about that. I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit more on, on what that concept is and, and why that's important. 
Yes, the psychological safety is sort of the concept at the at the very heart of this discussion because the the recovery window is a way of conveying that if psychological safety isn't present, then you're at greater risk than if it is because you'll squander the recovery window sort of more more often than not. But psychological safety I define as a belief that the context is safe for interpersonal risks like speaking up with a tentative concern or a question when you're not quite sure what to do or even to acknowledge a mistake or to point out someone else's mistake. None of those behaviors in a work environment are ever easy, but there are some work environments where you believe they are expected and desired. Um, and in others, you know, you just feel it's uh, sometimes it can feel almost impossible um, to, to do, right? It's it's so much more natural in unpsychologically safe environments to just hold back, to hope someone else notices it too, to, you know, to wait and see um, and, and, you know, to sort of stay safe, you know, for another minute or another hour or whatever the time frame might be. So psychological safety describes an environment where you truly believe that candor is possible. In my research, I have found that not to be the norm, but it, it is a very powerful thing when it's there. It be, and that's, of course, at the, that, that's the underlying foundational aspect of high reliability organizations is people feel, yeah, of course. And it's not that they love speaking up with mistakes or challenging someone on a, on, on a decision that they're making. No one loves doing that, but it's that they have such a great appreciation at a very deep level for why it matters, right? For, for why the, for why the quality of the work, uh, the, the goals we all care about, why they are well served by that behavior. Some, some words around that, which I thought were particularly poignant was, um, situational humility and proactive inquiry, which, which I've, I've underlined, which I think is just, um, fantastic. Um, I wanted to pick up on around conflict, because you know, speaking up can be uh, challenging, uh, particularly if you're a junior. So, in some sense, you are walking into to some sort of conflict. Uh, how how is that best framed and understood, such that we can be um, have positive outcomes from those types of interactions? To answer that, let me just explain situational humility first. It's situa- and situational humility is. Uh, a stance, I would say, that it's especially helpful when higher status or higher power individuals exercise it. And it is not about modesty or false humility in any way, shape, or form. It's it's um, the wisdom to understand you don't have a crystal ball, right? There's, there's literally no way to have a, you know, perfect view of the future. No one has a perfect view of the future. So it's, it's, it's more, I think of situational humility as that beautiful recognition that we've never been in this situation before, you know, this exact situation, maybe we've done another code or maybe we've done another cabbage, but we've never been right here right now in this situation. Um, and anything could happen, right? So it's, 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 um, when you're coming from that place, you do a variety of things that make it clear to people that you value their observations, right? It's just, you'll naturally do that when you come from that place. But proactive inquiry, which you also mentioned, means even that isn't enough. You have to, you have to 
request input. And best way to do that is, of course, through inquiry, through asking a question. And that's what you're doing right here. And when you ask me a question, I immediately feel very, I would feel very odd just staying silent. Even though staying silent is normal, natural, and easy in other situations, it becomes quite hard in a situation where someone has asked you a question. You're, you feel compelled to answer a question. So you, you do. Now, you might not answer truthfully, but there are things you can do to increase the chances of that um, as well. So you know, what we're talking about here is how do you create an environment of psychological safety? How do, we, how do you create an environment where people really do believe um, that that's how we that's how we behave around here because of what's at stake. And I think that idea around an obligation to speak up uh, is is a really interesting one. And and I, I can imagine modeling these types of behaviors with your team. You know, really actually saying, "Hey, I don't know everything." Um, that you know, let me know if there's something even a little bit off. I was sort of reflecting on there are some mistakes that happen once in a career that can be devastating in healthcare. You know, a, a decimal place on a drug in the wrong way can be catastrophic. And so, you know, really thinking about the almost the odds game of, you know, how how big could this problem be if I don't know about it? Uh, and I can very easily, now that I know about it, uh, then make an informed decision and, and we, can, we can move on, as opposed to feeling like this is another uh, burden to take on with, when there is a question. And I think that sometimes in senior positions in, in clinical spaces, uh, that accountability can feel like it's all falling on that individual and sharing that accountability can be really difficult. And so I can imagine why over over time you can hold on to that um, that role very tightly uh, because of potential experiences that have been negative for you. Yes. And, and, you know, in what you just said, I'm in my, in my most recent book, which doesn't come out until September, I'm got a whole chapter on situation awareness as a competency. And I think it's, it's a trainable competency. And, and there's really just two dimensions of situational awareness. Of course, there's lots and lots of detail and nuance in any situation that may be important, certainly clinically important. But the basic premise is what are the stakes and what's the uncertainty, right? And, and for anything, you know, high stakes or even medium stakes and high or even medium uncertainty, you're going to pause, you know, go thoughtfully, you know, seek other, other views. You're going, you're going to, um, if you're, if you're competent at situation awareness, you're going to realize um, this is not a context to act um, recklessly, or, or maybe that's too strong a word, but even mindlessly, you know, even just on automatic pilot. There are things you can do on relative automatic pilot, particularly when the stakes are low, you know, emptying the dishwasher, you can do that on automatic uh, pilot. But when there's high stakes reputationally, financially, or, or from a human safety perspective, and, you know, reasonable uncertainty, which comes with variable contexts and innovation contexts, then you proceed sort of carefully, mindfully, you know, you, you re relate to others and with others um, in, as, in as sort of explicit and thoughtful a way as you possibly can. 
Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the work you've done around uh, motivation and learning in healthcare. I know you wrote about uh, reviewing some cardiothoracic uh, teams when they were going through some significant changes and identified some common themes around uh, success and, and perhaps failure, if you can use that word. What, what were some of the insights that you saw there? Well, I'll I'll, um, I'll say that psychological safety showed up again, playing a starring role. And in any innovation setting, and this was an innovation setting, this was a setting in which um, these cardiac uh, teams, cardiac surgery teams were um, implementing a new minimally invasive uh, procedure, which was different components and, and techniques um, to do the surgery through a small incision rather than a median sternotomy. And when the teams approached the implementation challenge, um, and this is particularly on the, pers- the perspective of the, of the leading surgeon or the implementing surgeon, with you know, explicit humility, we've never done this before. This is an opportunity to um, perhaps make patients more comfortable and, and able to recover faster. Um, and we haven't done this before, and it's going to take all of us working together in the operating suite in a new way, right? That make, in other words, making that statement of fact explicit rather than implicit made a huge difference. And it contributed to um, more psychological safety in the teams where the surgeons showed that kind of innovation leadership, um, if you will. Uh, there, there was also the, the surgeons tended to model inquiry. You know, what are you seeing? They'd be talking the whole time. What are you seeing? What am I missing? And and that allowed, or at least that set the model that allowed others uh, to sort of mimic that behavior and ask each other, what are you seeing? And of course, there were, they were, there was a lot more data available through imagery rather than just through direct line of sight. So that meant speaking up about what you're seeing. Um, and, and, um, they, the, the sort of more successful implementers were um, embraced a frame that was really a learning frame, I would call it, rather than a sort of um, let's get it done frame, right? A, 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 what, what I might call a kind of execution frame. It was an explicit sort of learning frame, which saw the journey as a kind of, you know, plan, do, check, act, or, you know, diagnose, design, implement, reflect, cycle that just kept on going. So no rocket science, right? but but really a different mindset that led to different and far more teamy kinds of behaviors that, that led to um, at least more success sticking with it, implementing um, and, and continuing. I, 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 we did not have any differences in clinical outcomes in the, in the sort of high innovators and low innovators, because what happened was the, the low innovators just kind of abandoned the effort over after, after a pretty short time. It's just like, this is too hard. It's too different. It didn't feel, um, it, it, it didn't feel as plausible uh, to them to keep going. Yeah, I think that that research is fascinating because I think sometimes we can just assume we just need the technology, you know, implement the technology and we'll all perform and and everything will be better. But actually, it's those interpersonal relationships that are vital for the performance of any 
team and that framing around uh, a, a purpose, around higher purpose, really, around learning as the objective as opposed to just executing a plan, I think is, is probably quite a powerful motivator. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up purpose because I, I didn't mention that, but it's really important because it wasn't as if they had um, a tremendously articulate purpose. It was just that the, they were explicit about purpose, about, you know, what this opportunity presented and, and why, you know, purpose is answering the question of why, why exert all this effort that's hard. Well, the reason was to help patients recover faster, or in one case, to to be on the leading edge of what's possible in our field. Whereas in the others, it wasn't that they expressed a bad purpose or, you know, um, they just didn't, they just assumed you know, probably just assumed that why we're why we're doing this is is obvious. So sometimes it's just a matter of doing the thing that you might otherwise think is like, for example, taking care of patients is obviously a high purpose activity. You know, nothing or very few things could be as important as 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 people's health. And so you know in your field that you've got the purpose thing sewn up, right? You don't, why even talk about it? Well, wrong. It, in fact, in fact, it turns out that the difference between making it explicit and talking about it and not doing so is night and day in terms of the, the sort of psychological impact on people. Yeah. I mean, w- what you're making me reflect on as well is the difference between complex and clear goals. And, um, you know, in healthcare, you know, thinking about the COVID response, uh, sometimes these very clear um, problems and, and, and objectives can really focus uh, an organization. Uh, but sometimes when we're not in, quote, wartime, you know, uh, sometimes those goals can be a little bit more ambiguous. I wonder if you could speak to how leaders can perhaps, um, you know, better create that alignment such that the goals are meaningful and attainable. Absolutely. In fact, uh, I, I've been um, writing recently about the difference between a, a sudden crisis like COVID-19, where, at, where you, know, you immediately realize we're up against something new, frightening, urgent, um, and it's, you know, it's, not, it's not fun, but it's relatively easy and clear cut to kind of rally the troops. It's, it's, a, it's fairly top down, you know, um, clear sort of marching orders on what needs to be done right now, really just to just to survive the crisis. Um, very different setting. I did a deep dive study of the Chilean mine rescue. Again, absolute crystal clear crisis, no easy solution, but it is clear that um, we had to act, we had to act fast, and we had to see whether we could figure it out and, and get them back. Whereas today, we're much more in the midst of what I would call a sustained crisis, um, where it's it's just kind of ongoing, challenging, difficult work where the answer isn't sort of top-down, do this, but almost a an invitation and an inspiration to, for everyone to be engaging in ongoing learning and solution creating in a, you know, in a, in a kind of series of just um, perpetually challenging work situations, right? you know, one after another. And, and that's bringing in a big focus on resilience and burnout. And, um, and sometimes it can seem virtually 
in, unsolvable, but it, I, I think it's a, I think with a shift in mindset and a, and a way of sort of taking care of ourselves and each other, you know, recognizing that this is what we're up against and responding in more teamy and agile ways, um, we can navigate this sort of perma crisis that lies ahead. But but the old business as usual and the top down crisis, sudden crisis techniques won't work. Yeah, and, and I'm thinking about how frontline staff can be empowered to to communicate, uh, you know, up and across the organisation, and thinking as uh, leaders how you can facilitate and support that type of uh, dialogue and communication isn't necessarily always about providing the answers. It's about you know asking good questions and then providing the resources such that. Um, that those um, those people who are really experiencing the problems uh, can uh, not only solve their own problems, but also look to solve perhaps more systemic problems. Um, you've done some interesting research around nurses and first order problem solving versus second order problem solving, which I found really fascinating. And one one particular piece was around how the unit's uh, self-reliance on solving problems actually inhibited the system as a whole in its learning. I wonder if you could speak to that. Yes, it's, uh, and that may be another sort of remnant, unhealthy remnant of the professional mindset, which is kind of a, I have to do it myself. Um, and the mindset is, I do what it takes, you know, to provide care for my patients. That mindset will lead to what Anita Tucker uh, and I called um, workarounds, and you all are familiar with 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 workarounds. But workarounds feel good, right? They feel they feel gratifying because you get the job done. But what we what we noticed in our data was that the the presence of workarounds actually and the effectiveness of them in the short term inhibited efforts to do the root cause problem solving that might contribute to reducing the occurrence of that particular kind of problem again. In other words, there can be, this is only one facet of the phenomenon, but there's can be a little bit of a hero feeling um, that, that leads to a sort of quasi-addiction to um, swimming upstream against these annoying little problems, but you're, you're heroically able to solve them that can get in the way of sort of stepping back and saying, wait a minute, how do we redesign certain aspects of the system so that these particular recurring problems, even something as, say, simple as a, a shortage of linens, for example, so that those don't keep happening, so that we don't get... Because ultimately, we did also see the suggestion of burnout as, as, a, as a result of the extra time and effort it took to engage in all these workarounds. And it often led to unpaid overtime and and just um, yeah long long days and I think what I'd add to that uh, when I was reflecting on this piece was around the the ripples across the organization so a short fix uh, can move you know equipment resources time from one area to another and now suddenly that area is short of that time or resource or, or personnel and so right it's um, it, it, it has these ripple effects uh, that, if you're not addressing, will just continue to, to bounce around. Yes, it's the here and now thinking, which is very human, very natural, very understandable. 
but the here and now thinking um, where I just got to do what it takes to care for my patient here, but I'm, I'm relatively unaware of the ripple effects of how my taking linen from your unit is now creating a problem over there. Um, and it, you know, it's not that people are insensitive, it's just that they're busy. So their lens is focused on the care as, as, as it should be. Uh, but we need, we need that, we need that room and that space and that authorization of doing that a little bit extra to also um, do what you can to alert or, or solve the problem from recurring. Now, I'd like to sort of start rounding out our conversation. It's been an absolute uh, brilliant run through. Uh, I was wondering, for people looking to apply some of this research to their um, uh, clinical spaces, uh, sometimes it can be challenging to see how unique an organization is, what the learnings were from it, and then apply it to uh, your own uh, organization. Any advice on how people should be uh, applying some of this research? Well, I think you've mentioned um, in passing some of what I would recommend. Um, and, and, and one is, you know, when you mention situational humility, that's a stance. But what are the behaviors? I think the behaviors are calling attention to novelty, complexity, or challenge, or all three. It's a, just literally calling attention to the nature of the work we do creates a wonderful shared rationale for why we're in this together, you know, why everybody's voice might matter. Um, and probably even more importantly, proactive inquiry. If I could only suggest one thing, it would be ask more questions and, you know, ask good questions. What are you seeing? Um, what are you thinking? What are you noticing? What are, what are we missing? Who's got another idea? There's a there's sort of there's a set of what um, and sometimes how questions that are very powerful at at, at um, re- almost requiring people to share what they're thinking. Just shifting gears here slightly, uh, I'd love to hear how things are going with the new book. Well, it's done. I'm in fact I've got the um, final page proofs, corrected page proofs um, in front of me right now. So. It'll be out on September 12th. It's called Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. Um, and it's it's a book that uh, for the first time speaks not only to professionals and managers, but also to people in their own lives. We're all fallible human beings. Um, mistakes and failures will happen. They're not the same thing, by the way, but they will happen. Um, and we can navigate them with, less pain, more joy, um, more discovery. So that's that's what it's all about. Sounds like a fascinating book. And uh, I really like the idea of how some of these things are applied uh, you know, in people's daily lives. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Professor Amy Edmondson. Yeah, you're very welcome. And that brings us to the end of the podcast. If you want to go deeper about any of these topics or join the discussion, visit our website, clinicalchangemakers.com. Now, one small ask, this is a brand new podcast, so if you enjoyed our work, please rate us and share it with your friends and colleagues. Until next time, take care.